Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Round Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Round Podcast for September 18th, 2009, on which we answer a listener question about bodhisattvas. So uh, we got an email from one of our listeners, and it is a question. And it's related to bodhisattvas, and so we, I have the email here in front of me, and I, it's a pretty good question. So I think I'm going to read most of it. Uh, he says, This question keeps bugging me, and it's the only doubt I have about the doctrine of Jodo Shinshu. I understand that all the followers of Shinran are reborn in the Pure Land. This I have no problem with. But after rebirth in the Pure Land, we return to Earth as bodhisattvas. Where are all these bodhisattvas dedicating themselves to helping others? I don't see that many. However, I witness evil acts daily committed by people who are definitely not bodhisattvas, and most of us just live our lives caring for ourselves and our families and friends only. Where are all these bodhisattvas hiding? So it's a really, really good question um, because, you know, uh, it it addresses some important aspects of Jodo Shinshu and the life of Jodo Shinshu and the path, uh, but it begs a lot of questions too. And so, boy, um, does it! Yeah. So, I think what we need to do first is address the issue of just what is a bodhisattva, because right. some of our listeners uh, may not. Uh, you've, you've heard the term probably, but but it's. I think for many many people, um, it's unclear what that could what that means, and it means several things, which is part of the issue. Right. I, either it might be unclear, or you might people might have different ideas about. I think there's a many a multitude of ways that you can interpret what a bodhisattva is, or who a bodhisattva is, or even how you become a bodhisattva and what you do once you become one. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps you're hiding. Yeah. <laughs> Which so, I love. I love that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, what, what's a bodhisattva then? It's like, what's a yakisoba? Have you ever seen that commercial? No. <laughs> okay. What's a yakisoba? Never mind. We'll get to that later. <laughs> um, I think probably the early understanding of bodhisattva was... Shakyamuni Buddha, the, the historical Buddha in his previous lives. Right. Because basically, Bodhisattva to me, the, if I were to give, have to give one definition, I would say Buddha in training. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who is training to become a Buddha. Uh, and so is at this point, if they're not Buddha yet, they're a Bodhisattva. Right. So the, the um, historical Buddha, um, you know, appears and attains enlightenment and... Uh, teaches and then disappears uh, but and at some point people begin telling stories about his previous births and he may even talk about those in his own teachings mm-hmm. right and I'm, I'm not totally sure on the Pali suttas but definitely Mahayana sutras he talks about previous lives that he had yeah as a bodhisattva that other people had so and, and he's referred to as such right right the bodhisattva yeah. right the bodhisattva the the um, this person who's going to become Buddha right yeah so that's one very basic understanding. Right. Which, which implies that a bodhisattva is certainly human, and, or at least a well, sentient being. 
maybe not human, yeah, but certainly a being, ascension some kind of being. being yeah, because um, sometimes a, the yeah. Buddha, Shakyamuni appeared as a rabbit or right, something, and he was right, a bodhisattva right. then too. Yeah, but still, it sort of implies a certain reality mm-hmm. or a certain experiential thing that we can relate to, mm-hmm. which I think is the reason why I'm saying that is because I'm setting up the possibility that there's other ways of understanding what a bodhisattva uh, is mm-hmm. that take a greater leap of faith, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, than merely a, a, a Buddha in training. Okay. Um, because there's other stories of bodhisattvas doing things that I can't imagine a normal human being doing. Okay. You know, various spiritual or even magical powers, for example. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, leaving aside sort of artistic representations of like the thousand-armed Guan Yin, you know, you can sort of dismiss the, the, the thousand-armed Guan Yin as, you know, that's a merely uh, a symbolic representation of, you know, her particular spiritual powers. Maybe. <laughs> so you're talking about now another understanding of the term bodhisattva. Right. And and I remember some people have told have referred to this as the sort of celestial bodhisattva. Right. right. Um, which implies a certain higher level of of meaning or spirituality or something that is not quite of this sort of mundane world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dancing around some terms here because many of them make me uncomfortable as a scholar. <laughs> so the example you gave, Guan Yin or Kannon in Japanese, mm-hmm. Avalokiteshvara uh, in Sanskrit is one kind of classic example right. of one of these quote-unquote celestial bodhisattvas. Right. That they're not... They may look human to a certain extent, but they're something beyond human, right? They're almost like... Um, yeah, a deity would be the word, or deities, to make sure it's plural, not referring to a monotheistic system, but some kind of spiritual, yeah, even angel, I was going to say. I mean, you yeah, know, just really <laughs> um, simplistic kind of um, ways to think about these bodhisattvas as not only human, not mere human. Right. And from that point of view, I think the answer to the question of where are these bodhisattvas hiding, then you can sort of get into more metaphysical answers, right? I mean, in that question, I hear this one sort of understanding of bodhisattva, meaning a sort of very literal, you know, person who is a bodhisattva doing good works. But what if bodhisattvas are not just people, but they're also these sort of, you know, quasi-spiritual, celestial, whatever sort of beings that are able to sort of move in and out of various realities, and you might not recognize them as such, which mm-hmm. opens up a whole other level of where they might be hiding. Okay. <laughs> which... I can't comment on not being enlightened to myself and not being able to see them. <laughs> so, so this kind of bodhisattva is really important in the Mahayana tradition, certainly in as it developed in China, Japan, uh, probably Tibet, right? That yeah. um, these are uh, these bodhisattvas. Kanon's just one example. Manjushri would be another. Uh, Maitreya, maybe. Um, there's there's a whole bunch. Samantabhadra. Yeah. Um, so on. But Kanon's a good example because, like in the Lotus Sutra, there's a whole chapter about, um, you know, that if you're in trouble, maybe you're on a ship and you're attacked by pirates, or you're on a, in a caravan out in the desert on the Silk Route, and you're attacked by bandits, that if you um, say the right words or you know sincerely call on Avalokiteshvara, he slash she will come and protect you, save right. you. Yeah, yeah. So all very almost mystical or magical kind of. Um, aspect of uh, these celestial bodhisattvas. I don't like that word, celestial bodhisattvas. Yeah, yeah. What does it have to do with stars? <laughs> right? But cosmic bodhisattvas. Cosmic, that would be, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so that's another understanding of bodhisattva. Right. Uh, we'll come back to that. Um, I think a third understanding of bodhisattva is, uh, well, this idea of bodhisattva path, 
right. right? To become, that one would want to become a bodhisattva oneself. Meaning, one is planning on becoming a Buddha. And so this gets held up as one of the distinctions between Mahayana and uh, the non-Mahayana, pre-Mahayana. Um, I'm not going to use the lesser vehicle term uh, because it's um, pejorative and um, isn't, wasn't used by them themselves. But, you know, that rather than become an arhat, rather than just attain uh, a lesser nirvana for oneself, that rather one should aim towards perfect Buddhahood, meaning become a bodhisattva uh, in order to save all beings. Right. Uh, and so this, maybe not in Jodo Shinshu, but some schools of Buddhism, this is what you do. I think yeah. Tibetan Buddhism, you take bodhisattva vows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, vow to be a bodhisattva, vow to attain Buddhahood uh, for the sake of all beings. So this is another level of bodhisattva that I think is, is more, um, is important to be aware of because many Buddhists throughout the world do it uh, and is very much personal and something that one would undertake oneself. Right, I, and I, I, I agree with all that, although my, my caveat to all of, to that, that sense of being on the bodhisattva path, my understanding is that there's a wide world of difference between being on the bodhisattva path and being a bodhisattva. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, you know, you can be on the bodhisattva path but be very far away from actually being a bodhisattva. That's a good point. Um, and there's even... Or you could be a low-level bodhisattva. Right. There's multiple levels of bodhisattva. I was just going to say, there's a, whole, yeah, there's a whole long list of, of different levels, at stages at which you can actually become a bodhisattva and then there's the other, you know, other ways of, of, of understanding that path. Um, I only say this because I've had many conversations with people who have this expectation that, you know, once you become a Buddhist or once you become on the Bodhisattva path, you're suddenly somehow more enlightened or, or a better person or more moral than somebody else. And I always like to make that distinction of there's a difference between being a Buddhist or being on the Bodhisattva path and actually being a Buddha. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think being on the Bodhisattva path means that you're still sort of befuddled by human imperfections. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I never really thought of that. My, my little caveat there. No. My good. little pet peeve. Very okay, important. moving on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think that we actually left out possibly one more understanding of bodhisattva, and that um, the, the classic example is Dharmakara Bodhisattva, Hozo Bosatsu, uh, who uh, is talked about in the quote-unquote Pure Land Sutras and makes vows and becomes Amida Buddha. And so it seems kind of like maybe the cosmic bodhisattvas we were talking about, but those bodhisattvas are viewed as, as uh, not you know, putting off their Buddhahood until all beings are saved. But that's not the only kind of bodhisattva, which is also a big um, sticky point, I think. Dharmakara bud- bodhisattva actually becomes Amida Buddha. Uh, just in a kind of linear narrative sense, he attains Buddhahood. And it's the powers, power of his vows, the 48 vows, that makes the whole Pure Land path possible. So it sets him up as Amida Buddha, sets up his Pure Land, but also sets up the mechanism so that regular sentient beings can be uh, born in the Pure Land. Yeah. Right, which was the, the whole purpose of this question, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So should we move <laughs> on to that? Yeah, yeah. Let's go on to that. So, I mean, he's asking, that, that Shinran's basically saying that, that after you're born in, in, in Amida's Pure Land, you come back here as right, a Bodhisattva right, right. and do good work. And that's the where I would begin to, to um, uh, 
give a different interpretation. Okay. I think that we, technically, because Shinran talks about this in Kyogyo Shinsho, and he talks about the going aspect and the returning aspect of the Pure Land Path. And that there's a whole issue of going to be born in the Pure Land, but that once one is born there, it's not like, aha, I made it to some nice, happy, heavenly place. Now I can relax. Sweet. <laughs> it's that. Uh, now I come back. So that returning aspect, that once one is born in the Pure Land, one returns to this world. And I think the question is, how does one return? Well, And that has multiple aspects. My understanding is Just that... Just blew my mind. As <laughs> at the instant one is, dies, one attains birth in the Pure Land... In the instant one attains birth in the Pure Land, one attains Buddhahood, and then comes back as a Buddha, so not, not as, a as a Bodhisattva. Yeah, so that's one important distinction that I would make here. Mm. Uh, that it's not uh, that one comes back as a Bodhisattva. One actually attains Buddhahood at the same time as one, or the instant one is born in the Pure Land. And so then as a Buddha, with power, with limitless powers, without the limitations of us as, as um, foolish beings, one is able to come back and help others. So it's a little bit different because coming back as a bodhisattva. That's not a little bit different. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> coming back as a bodhisattva, you, you kind of wonder, well, what kind? Would yeah. I be a celestial bodhisattva? Would I? Would I be a person? Would I? You know? Would I? Would I be some kind of regular being born as a child, kind of like Dalai Lama, right? Right. right born right, right. as a child, and then um, that maybe is is. Um, that's a different way of looking at it, certainly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Dalai Lama as, as being an incarnation of uh, Kandon, right? yeah, of, yeah. of Avalokiteshvara. Uh, and I think that uh, Shinran would actually, uh, it, it doesn't come up that much in Shinran's writings. It's not that clear, but there are definite points of yeah. this birth in the Pure Land, attainment of Buddhahood, instantaneous, and then coming back as a Buddha. All right, well, that being said doesn't get us off the hook because then the question is where are all these buddhas hiding uh-huh good question and smart so, I mean, guy <laughs> and i think that that again brings up the question well what does that mean to come yeah, back as yeah, a buddha yeah and are, are we taking it you know in the sort of literal sense or is it more metaphorical is it psychological is it symbolic i mean you know there's many different ways we could approach it yeah i would i would i would love it to, to think of it as in a literal sense Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that's why I like this question so much. This this literal idea of these bodhisattvas hiding someplace, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but maybe 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 we shouldn't take it as a literal. I don't know. I maybe a, we should. I don't know. I was in conversation with someone who uh, used to be Buddhist, uh, used to be BCA, but became Christian, and but he was still interested in Buddhism, and so he kept asking me. He's like, he'd ask me to explain it, and I you know I said this you know that when when we die we're born in the pure land, attain Buddha, and come back. And he's like, so so could that dog be Buddha? Or do you come back as a person? Or do you come back as a dog? So it's very much this literal kind of, yeah, okay, yeah. as Buddha then, how am I coming back? Uh, hmm. So. We don't have an answer to that, do we? Uh, no, well, I, <laughs> a response. Okay. I can't answer okay. it, right? Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. one Im- response that I would give is that although looking at the text, it, they often appear to give a very objective view of the system. And it can look very mechanical, right? And that, you know, okay, this is how it is, this is how it works, and this is what happens. That we have to recognize our own limitations and realize that um, I think that experiencing this, I mean, if when I die and I come back, maybe I'll experience it or not, but I haven't had that experience yet. 
So I can't say if it's true or not to tell the truth, you know, because I haven't done it myself. But then I think that um, experiencing, encountering a bodhisattva maybe, becomes a much more subjective experience. Hmm. And isn't, it's not like um, I can say, well, oh, that person, they must be a bodhisattva. Yeah, let's figure out when they died or when they were born or when someone else died and are they the reincarnation of whatever. I, I don't think Jodo Shinshu really works like that. Uh, and it's looking, it's more kind of asking us to transform our view of the world and maybe be more open to what experiences that we have, people we meet, things that happen, how those could be Buddha activity teaching me. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we could see it everywhere. Then I think if you look at it more that way, you can begin to see uh, a different kind of approach. Right. So if I can give a story. Yeah, you're blowing my mind right now. So go on. <laughs> I think I've told this story before here at the Dharma Realm, although maybe not. But I used to work at Cody's Books on Telegraph Avenue. And uh, one day I was working at the information desk and some person came up and uh, just started yelling at me, where's my book? I, I, I put this book on hold or something. I don't even remember the details, but um, it was a, you know older woman, maybe in her 50s or 60s. Could have been street person, not quite sure, but she's mad and like yelling at me and I'm getting very frustrated. And then finally, either me or someone else finds the book and I'm pretty much ready to slam it down in front of her. Um, but we find it. And so she doesn't even say thank you. She just wheels off and takes the book. And so I'm sitting here like, man, right? And so my coworkers, you know, are watching this from the sidelines, no one, no, um, they're, you know, they see this happen and I know how it is when someone else, you know, you got to kind of let people deal with it and they say, wow, you handled that really well. That was, you were, you know, I would have been screaming at the lady, but you, you know, pretty much kept your cool and got rid of her. Hmm. And in that instant, I realized, no, you know what? I think she was a bodhisattva because she showed me my anger. Like rather than judge that person and uh, be angry at that person, put the blame on that person, I could view it as a learning experience yeah. in that I saw that, no, I might have looked calm from the outside, but I was really angry inside. I could feel it, you know, wellowing, welling up, the, the burning anger coming up inside myself, and it gave me a minute or so more, and I might have um, threw the book at her or something, right? But from the experience, I uh, was shown my anger, reminded I'm not always a mellow person, that given a certain set of circumstances, I can turn into a complete uh, raging jerk, hmm. right? Um, now, it's not like, so was she like some apparition? Did she materialize outside the door and just come in in order to teach me that? I don't think so. I mean, you know, we could get romantic about it and yeah. say, well, maybe if we followed around with a camera, when she walked around the corner, she disappeared, <laughs> right? right? But it was some mystical kind of experience. I don't think we have to take it that far. Uh, and you know, and wh I don't, whether she's a bodhisattva or not, um, to be honest, I don't know. Yeah, and it's not really the question. Right. It's, it's what can I learn from this right. experience? And I, and to to sort of push this a bit further, I think that you could probably also make the argument that in that moment, you were also bodhisattva for your coworkers. Ah. Because they probably had the opportunity to watch what they perceived as somebody calmly and rationally dealing with a crazy person. And maybe that taught them not to react in an anger, uh, an angry or impatient way, when they had to deal with a with a crazy person, right? Mm -hmm. um, I probably shouldn't just say crazy person, but um, 
but but I think the we'll point, edit it out later. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. My my point though is that I think that perhaps you could also say that in that moment you were perceived as a bodhisattva, which really like relativizes the experience of what it means to be a bodhisattva or mm-hmm. even a, to mm-hmm. experience a Buddha. Right? That in that moment you felt like this you know, consumed with anger and, you know, unenlightened and all of those things. But from a third party person outside of that situation, you know, maybe you weren't, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who knows? Whoa. This is deep stuff. Yeah. (laughs) I think that in Jodo Shinshu, the emphasis isn't on us trying to be bodhisattvas, but it's interesting. You say that because maybe you could say that to me. No, Harry, you are the bodhisattva. Right. You know, and I could, I might think, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe this is what I should be doing, right? I should be trying to be a bodhisattva to everyone. And I think in Shinshu, it's, it's more the reflection on myself, uh, seeing maybe being able to see where maybe my ego is flaring up. And if I'm like, yeah, I like that idea, me as bodhisattva, that's pretty cool. I think maybe I am a bodhisattva, right? It's like, <laughs> that's where the, the <laughs> alarm bells are going, right? To realize, no, the whole point was that I got angry. Yeah. I, right? I figured that I could. That you were the one person I could tell that to. I think that many other people that I would say, "Oh, I think you're a bodhisattva." They would just it would go right to their head. Run with it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure I would run with it at times too. Um, it's you know, it's a kind of a, a middle way I think between uh, you know uh, having confidence in yourself and and you know feeling good about what you do, but at the same time being able to be somewhat self-critical, right, right? and self-reflective and and realize uh, recognize when you're falling short of the mark. Yeah. yeah, which I think is huge. Yeah. So that's really my answer, I think. is I mean, and, you know, on a, on a uh, ministry kind of level, when someone dies, we give them a homeo, right? And, and I think that uh, part of the uh, message I think that I give is that this person is a Buddha now. You know, and so we talk about that, and I'd say, you know, on one level, it could be just the memories that you have, right? Mm-hmm. That you have memories of this person and all this experience that you had with this person and kind of in the past, like a, a rational kind of view of what that might mean. But I think there's something more to it, you know, that uh, they're teaching us now. They're gone from this world. They're not in this form anymore, uh, but that uh, maybe they are teaching us as Buddhas. They're teaching us about impermanence. Sure. Or, you know, when I'm going on my life after this person has passed away and they're still influencing me they're still affecting me uh, and that if I can uh, kind of wake up to that see you know see things maybe differently than I thought before uh, that maybe that could be viewed as Buddha activity right hmm. so this has I think this takes on real world implications as a minister right and that I think some ministers don't emphasize this at all or don't even talk about it. I wouldn't be surprised if some um, don't even know about it, this idea of attaining birth in the Pure Land and attaining Buddhahood. You know, it's not really taught, because the traditional, see, this is different than traditional Mahayana, too. Traditional Mahayana, you're born in the Pure Land, and then you stay in the Pure Land for a while. That's like that place for ideal practice, right? Yeah. That you can do Bodhisattva practices, and at some point in the future, you'll become Buddha. But Shinran's understanding is that Amida's Pure Land the, the idea that it's a visual place that one goes for a, a period of time is a, is a kind of um, lower-level understanding, and that actually it is the realm of nirvana, quote-unquote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's a very much a collapsing, because even that whole idea of going to the Pure Land, 
when we first started this conversation, I was thinking, yeah, but there's all these stories where you you're reborn in the Lotus Sutra and depending uh, in the in the Lotus Blossom, and depending on how you lived your life, you're in there for thousands of years, maybe before you emerge and then hear the teachings, right? So mm-hmm. you might be in the Pure Land for thousands of years according to these sutras, right? But then Shinran, like you're saying, collapses that. Mm-hmm. It's not this long millennia long process of doing practice before you come back it's instantaneous right right yeah yeah and that's a very different uh understandings uh uh significant uh departure i think or right from the the, the normal tradition i've even seen it criticized in uh, a tibetan a book on tibetan buddhism uh written by like a tibetan lama or whatever and he said there's a misunderstanding that when one's born in the pure land one immediately becomes buddha the pure land is a place you go to practice it takes time <laughs> Right, so there's, and but that all comes down to what's your understanding of the Pure Land, right. which is something we'd like to take up in a future podcast. <laughs> yeah, assuming I have the battery power and the disk space. <laughs> We're having some technical difficulties <laughs> today. <laughs> we'll edit this out too. Don't worry. <laughs> no but we wanted to, um, uh, you know, it's a great question, and I think you know, I don't think we necessarily did answer the question. There's still um, maybe other ways to understand this, but. I think that ultimately it comes down to our experience as Buddhists uh, is very subjective. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that yeah. a lot of it is, well, how do I view things? How, you know, how can I, am I just going to complain about this <laughs> or am I going to try to learn from it? And can I see that learning and that experience as uh, Buddha activity? Yeah. I would say, I would say very subjective and relative, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, these experiences are not absolutes, right? That, that, you know, that woman could have come into Cody's on any day and had that same exact experience with anybody else. And they might've had a completely different experience, or it could have been somebody else that was just as angry and you might've reacted totally differently. I think it's mm-hmm. completely that all of these situations are very relative to particular times and places. And it's hard to make these absolute decisions of, these actions are always good and always right and always the work of a Buddha, a Buddha or a Bodhisattva, and these actions are always wrong and mm-hmm. evil and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, right, 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 right. It's so difficult to, to yeah. make those, those absolute judgments. And so I think these questions are important. I think it's really yeah. important to yeah. wrestle with these questions and that we shouldn't give the, the, the straight, short, easy answer. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, better for ourselves and our own practice to wrestle with this stuff and to try to think about it and, and be open to changing our mind. You know, a year from now we'll do this podcast again. It'll be a completely different answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have better technology then too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we really appreciate this question. Uh, feel free to, you know, log on to any of our various web portals, uh, whether it's one of our blogs or the Dharma Realm blog or the Dharma Realm website or whatever, and uh, or Facebook or Facebook. Yeah, it always gives us a um, uh, food for thought. Yeah. yeah, and 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 you know we are doing a live event. Ah, uh, yeah, where where you can come and, and ask your questions in person and get a much faster response, much shorter <laughs> turnaround time for your uh, for your vague and meandering answers to all of your Buddhist questions. <laughs> and when is that happening again? Uh, October second. Woo! That's a Friday, huh? It is. Yeah. What time? Five p.m. Okay. So you can get here after work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're thinking. We're looking out for you. <laughs> <laughs> so this will conclude our uh, answer and discussion of uh, one of our listener questions for this 18th of September, 2009.